0: The History of the World Podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 19. The Battle of Lechfeld. in the region of Bavaria in the south of the modern country of Germany which is close to the city of Augsburg. It takes its name from the River Lech which flows from the alpine lands of Austria down through southern Germany before emptying into the Danube. These lands to the north of the Alps were inhabited by peoples closely related to Celtic cultures during the Iron Age. On the opposite side of the Alps is the Italian Peninsula and during the second half of the first millennium BCE the power of the Romans emerged and started to take control over more and more lands until the beginning of the first century BCE when as the Roman Republic it had control over the Italian Peninsula and large portions of the Iberian and Balkan Peninsulas. In the final years of the Roman Republic and despite the political fractures, Rome would expand its influence significantly by consolidating its realm on the lands of the Mediterranean Sea and would also conquer the lands of Gaul in the west of Europe under Julius Caesar. After the years of Julius Caesar, the Roman Republic continued to remain in civil war until the emergence of an ultimate victor who would rule the Roman Empire, as the Emperor Augustus. The future Emperor Tiberius served as a military leader under Augustus, and alongside his own brother Drusus, Tiberius would campaign in Bavaria. The Celtic peoples of this area were referred to by the Romans as Recians and Vindelici. When Tiberius and Drusus conquered the lands, it would be incorporated as the province of Risha and Vindelicia, and a capital city was established on the river Lech, where it is met by the river Vertach, and the city was called Augusta Vindelicorum, in the emperor's honour. It is this city which would evolve to become the modern German city of Augsburg these lands would be the Roman northern frontiers which were under regular threat from Germanic tribes to its north such as the Quadi, the Suebi and the Marcomanni. But they always remained within the Roman Empire. However, the first very real threat to the city of Augusta Vindelicorum came from the Huns during the 5th century. The Huns Sacked the city and established a position of power in Central Europe. After the decline and disappearance of the Huns, the area would remain part of the Western Roman Empire, although by this time Western Rome was in a steep decline which would lead to its ultimate collapse. The Alemanni tribes, also of Germanic origin, would take control of the lands to the northwest of the area while Western Rome fell under foreign rule. It would not be long before the Ostrogoths rose to power under their celebrated king, Theodoric the Great, who would take control of the area and conquer the entire Italian peninsula. At this time, it was still a somewhat barbarian and hostile area though, which was inhabited by Alemanni. Then the emergence of a Frankish imperial movement came from under their king Clovis, and it came from the far northwest, and their influence spread into the lands of the Alemanni, which would bring them into close proximity to the lands of the Ostrogoths. It is at this point that we see the emergence of the term Bavarian to describe the occupants of these lands, and we start to see the use of the term Swabian to describe the people who lived in the lands of modern Germany directly west from the Bavarians. The reference to Bavarians and Swabians will become significant. So now once again, the area of Bavaria became somewhat of a borderland as it had been under the Romans, but now it was part of the easternmost reaches of the Franks, and it would look south to the kingdom of the Lombards, which had taken lands that had been formerly controlled by the Ostrogoths, and then to the east, to the lands that had been taken over by the Pannonian Avars. So the Franks used these territories to stop incursions by these peoples on their eastern fringes. It would be under the Frankish King Charlemagne at the end of the 8th century that we would see the Franks complete their conquest of the Lombards and push the Avars right the way back east towards the Carpathian mountain range. Charlemagne sacked the city of Augsburg and now these lands were very much within the Frankish Empire between the emerging duchies of Swabia and Bavaria. Even though a bishopric had already existed in Augsburg for a few centuries, certainly Christian and Frankish influence would have become more firmly established in terms of law and religious practices. Charlemagne passed down to his son, Louis the Pious, an established empire which contained Augsburg and the lands around the Lech River. This area represented the western borders of the Frankish Duchy of Bavaria and the eastern fringes of the territories that belonged to the Alemanni, and would go on to become the Duchy of Swabia. Upon the death of Louis the Pious in the year 840, action would need to be taken to deal with the Frankish Empire and its future. Frankish traditions dictated that the realms of the father shall be split between his sons, and Louis would have three surviving sons, So the vast Frankish empire that Louis inherited from his great father Charlemagne would need to somehow be split between three men. The Germans We see the term German used for the modern country of Germany and for the ancient culture of Germanic people and often whatever comes in between. However, the existence of a German kingdom came around this time after the lands of Germanic culture were conquered by Frankish King Charlemagne and split between his grandsons by the Treaty of Verdun in 843. Louis the Pious had a young son, also called Louis, who was awarded the easternmost Frankish territories by this treaty. And this territory is known as East Francia to distinguish it from Middle Francia and West Francia. Eventually, East Francia would be recognised as the beginnings of a German realm that we can recognise in today's world. For that reason, we retrospectively refer to young Louis as Louis the German, The lands of East Francia were bordered to its west and south by the lands of Middle Francia. To its north would be the Danes and to its east would be the Slavs and the easternmost lands of East Francia often had to contend with Slavic raids but Slavic culture would have an influence on the existing Germanic cultures of East Francia over time as well. When Middle Francia collapsed later in the 9th century East Francia took control of its northernmost lands and this is when we can really see the extent of a powerful predecessor to Germany dominating the middle of the European map. The Carolingian influence on these lands started to wane however as the local dukes gained more power and influence. Monarchs would continue to be elected but the monarchs' influence over the entirety of East Francia was simply becoming weaker regional rebellions started becoming more commonplace and so the cycle of strong monarchs leading to weak monarchs leading to strong local leaders becoming new strong monarchs continued as we had already witnessed in Frankish lands for centuries already. While East Francia was attempting to reorganise itself from within, another ethnic group was beginning to establish itself in a new homeland which it had been shuffled into by other political affairs elsewhere. The Hungarians On the easternmost fringes of East Francia, one could find the expansive grasslands of the Pannonian Basin, with its most commonly recognised majority portion being the Great Hungarian Plain. Beyond these lands were the Bulgarians who had recently established themselves between the Carpathian Mountains and the Black Sea. Like the Bulgarians, the Hungarians are believed to have been steppe land westward migrating nomads before they settled in the lands that we recognise their modern states to still exist at today. A lot of the histories of such people is the subject of huge scrutiny and guesswork by historians who look for cultural similarities to explain the closeness of relationships between peoples and the possible migrations of ethnic groups. But we can be quite certain that the known emergence of Hungarians during the 9th century would have seen their fortunes intertwined with those of the early Bulgarians and the early Oz Turks. We spoke more about the Bulgarians in earlier episodes when examining their relationship with the Byzantine Empire to their south and the Oz Turks when examining the origins of the great Seljuk Turkic Empire which also had a considerable influence on Byzantine fortunes in Anatolia in particular. While the Oz Turks remained and migrated down through the Caucasus, the Hungarians would migrate westwards towards Europe and the lands established by the Bulgarians. In typical steppe culture fashion, the Hungarians concentrated their efforts on fearlessly raiding the lands of their neighbours and so we are aware that on their arrival in Europe during the 9th century that they would have been causing problems for the Bulgarians, the Pannonian Slavs and the East Francians. It is during this period in history that the Hungarian Magyar tribes entered the Pannonian Basin and settled the lands while the remaining Hungarians to their east were defeated in battle by the Bulgarians and this meant that by the conclusion of the 9th century Hungarian culture had been confined to the lands of the Pannonian Basin occupied by these Magyar tribes. From this point, the Magyars would terrorise the lands of the Europeans to their west with continual raids on their lands. As mentioned previously, the weakening of centralisation in East Francia only served to encourage the Magyars to successfully raid the lands of East Francia during the earliest years of the 10th century. Local counts and dukes would attempt to fend off the aggressions of the Magyars to little effect. The success of the Magyars could be put down to their loyalty to a military leader called a Grand Prince who would unite the Magyar tribes whenever they conducted their raids, and therefore we can refer to this period of Hungarian history as the Age of the Principality of Hungary. But with the acquisition of greater wealth made from the successful raids of the Hungarians, it may be the case that local warlords were starting to believe in their own methods of leadership and question why they needed to follow the direction of a grand prince at all. Otto the Great As described before, centralisation of East Francia had declined since the creation of the state during the 9th century. The Frankish king, Charles the Fat, was not popular throughout the Frankish kingdoms and he was overthrown by his nephew Arnulf who proclaimed himself as the new King of East Francia and the new Holy Roman Emperor. Many of his peers refused to recognise him which debilitated his international relations and those of East Francia too. On his death he was succeeded by his infant son Louis, known to history as Louis the Child, and the actual rule of East Francia was being handled by senior statesmen. This marked a real low point for East Francia with its lands being ravaged by the Magyars in the east and a distinct lack of recognition of central authority. Louis the Child died as a teenager and his branch of the Carolingian line had died out with him leaving a power vacuum and a lack of accepted authority, so it was decided that his successor needed to be elected. It would be the Duke of Franconia, a duchy in the centre of East Francia, centred on the modern city of Frankfurt, who would be elected, and his name was Conrad. Despite Conrad's election, the other Dukes were not necessarily willing to prioritize East Francia over their own duchies, with some believing that Carolingian traditions were correct and therefore showing loyalty to the West Francian king instead. So clearly the problems in East Francia had not been solved. The Duke of the East Francian Duchy of Saxony was a man called Henry and he opposed Conrad. On Comrade's death, he would be declared as the new king of East Francia and is referred to by the name Henry the Fowler due to his bird trapping skills. Being a Saxon, Henry was the first East Francian king who was not of Frankish blood. Henry would allow his fellow dukes more autonomy and treat the East Francian state more like a confederation of duchies. Significantly, he would offer a tribute to the Magyars in order to buy a truce to prevent any further raids and this would enable Henry to fortify some of the cities on the eastern front of this new German confederation. Henry was a considerable king who turned the fortunes of East Francia around and brought about a new feeling of national identity. We could even suggest that this was the birth of the modern German national identity and what it is to be a German. Henry died in 936 and the rule of Germany passed into the hands of his 23-year-old son, Otto. Otto was elected to the role in the same way that his father had been. However, as we have seen so many times in history, When a strong ruler dies and a new younger ruler takes their place, many factions see fit to challenge that new ruler and this occasion was no exception. Many of the local leaders saw fit to challenge Otto and he successfully dealt with all of them. Some were exiled while others were killed. He would even face revolt from inside the duchy of his heritage, Saxony, and from inside his own family, most notably his younger brother Henry. Henry was placated more than once by Otto, and his life was spared. The considerable thing about Germany during this time was that it would be required to make war or diplomatic moves in all directions, with there being nations on all sides. To the east were the Slavs and the Bohemians, to the north were the Danes, and to the west were the French. To the south were the Italians and the Burgundians. Otto would need to deal with each of these relationships in a similar way to how he dealt with each of his internal threats by both war and diplomacy. Otto did not win each and every battle that he undertook, but certainly the end result in each case was not disastrously unsuccessful. For example, he did lose in battle to the Bohemians initially, but still returned to force the submission of the Bohemian Prince. Otto's achievements up to the 950s were considerable. Everything that we know about the earliest Hungarians is provided by foreign sources, such as the work of the Byzantine Emperor Constantine Seventh, called De Administrando Imperio, which was a guide to governance written for his son Romanos II, and a story that we mentioned during our Byzantine series, especially when building up the story of the conflict between the byzantines and the bulgarians the grand prince of the hungarians when the hungarians settled the pannonian basin was a man called arpad and the rule of the principality of hungary was conducted by his descendants referred to as the arpad dynasty statesmen ranks within hungary included julazs and horcas which were titles that would have derived from tribal and military leaderships. It is possible that the Horkar had some form of judicial authority, but with sources being ambiguous we can't be entirely sure of the specific duties or even how they may have changed over time. During the first half of the 10th century, under Arpad and his immediate successors, the Hungarians fearlessly travelled all round the entirety of mainland Europe. They would conduct raids as far east as the Byzantine Empire and as far west as France and even into Al Andalus. The Grand Prince Fais would send one of his Horkars, whose name was either Bulchu. Or via Bulchú to conduct a massive invasion of the German Duchy of Bavaria in the year 955. We know pretty much nothing about the background of Bulchú, unfortunately. Prelude to the battle. Throughout Europe, the Hungarians created huge concern possibly in a similar way to the Vikings in northern Europe, with their terrifying raids. They would follow in the footsteps of other steppe culture migrants over centuries gone by, such as the Huns, from whom the name Hungarians may have been applied by contemporary Europeans who likened them to the Huns that had been so troublesome 500 years earlier. We should not be surprised to know that a significant portion of the Hungarian army were horse archers, something of a major expert factor of most armies that originated from steppe cultures such as the Scythians, the Parthians, the Huns and the Turks. These light cavalry faced traditionally heavy armoured European cavalry, as was often the case with the regimental style of European state armies of centuries gone by, such as the Romans. When the order came for the invasion of Bavaria, Otto needed to gather an army quickly in order to prevent the Hungarians from repeating their successes in German territory from earlier in the century that was stopped by Otto's father Henry the Fowler when he paid a huge tribute to the Hungarians to keep them away. Otto learned of the Hungarian invasion while campaigning against the Slavs further north and would need to hastily suspend activity to head south to the lands of the Lech River Valley. Before Otto had time to march south, the Hungarians had already entered Bavaria. The Hungarians were generally only interested in plunder so there is little to suggest that the Hungarians wished to conquer these lands rather they would be looking to steal from them. The Hungarians targeted the city of Augsburg and the city would need to hold out until Otto was able to assist in its defence with the irony being that Augsburg had rebelled against Otto just the previous year. Now the city was being besieged by the Hungarians and it was down to the bishop of the city, a man called Ulrich, who would conduct the defence until reinforcements could arrive. Bishop Ulrich was not alien to stepping up to the mark for the sake of his city, acting as a ruler where necessary. Otto would need to scrabble around to gather any kind of serious army, especially as his lands were somewhat disjointed by internal rebellion. Otto would need to leave some of his military in Saxony to maintain a defence force against the aggressions of the Slavs. Otto knew that he could rely on the support of the Bavarians due to the fact that they were directly impacted by the actions of the Hungarians but also he would muster troops from neighbouring Swabia, which was the area originally occupied by the Alemanni, and also Bohemians from the lands around the modern Czech Republic. The Duke of Lorraine was a man called Conrad the Red, and he was politically allied to Otto by marriage to Otto's daughter, Lutgard of Saxony. After Lutgard's untimely death in 953, Conrad submitted to Otto and loyally pledged military support to Otto as well, with the valuable addition of a thousand Franconian cavalry, heavily armoured and resembling the medieval European knight of whom we will speak of many times in future episodes. The Hungarians brought siege engines with them capable of launching projectiles over the city's defensive walls but Bishop Ulrich was able to continually resist the aggressions of the Hungarians over his city of Augsburg. When Otto was finally approaching the Hungarians lifted the siege and prepared to battle Otto. This raises the question as to whether it was the plan of the Hungarians all along to entice Otto into battle. Otto's route would have meant him leading his forces through the dense forests of Bavaria to reach the Lech Valley. So the Hungarians would look to lure the Germans into the open lands around the Lech River and to the south of Augsburg so that they could deploy Their archers in an attempt to impact the German army. The Battle of Lechfeld. As Otto's army was being lured through the forest, Hungarians would attempt to attack the rear of Otto's procession, including the German baggage train. The rearguard were made up of bohemians whose duty was to protect the baggage train but the Hungarians worked to devastating effect and were able to overpower the bohemians and gain access to the German booty. Otto would send Comrade the Red back through the forest with his Franconian knights to deal with the problem. The Hungarian tactics were clever with the aim to surround Otto's German army and pick them off, and it was working. When Conrad reached the German baggage train at the back of the procession, he discovered Hungarians eagerly plundering the loot in typical steppe culture fashion. Maybe many of the Hungarians were dismounted, believing that they had hit the jackpot. So when Conrad arrived, he surprised the indisciplined Hungarians... And started slaughtering them with his highly trained and heavily armored expert knights, Otto understood very quickly that it was the Hungarian plan to surround his army and decided that it would not be wise to march out into the open plains of the Lechfeld, but to keep close proximity to the forest to keep its cover on his rear. Otto knew that keeping a disciplined formation and tactical decision-making would give him a greater chance of overcoming the Hungarian attacks. The Hungarians formed a crescent shape to the east of the forest awaiting Otto's emergence and expecting his advance. Otto would indeed emerge, but he would have been constantly scheming ways to outwit his enemies. Despite us having very little in the way of a contemporary description, historians have come together over the years to provide us with a likely sequence of events based on what we do know. It is thought that Otto gave command of his left flank to Comrade the Red, and Otto chose to heavily load up his left flank in a bid to surprise, disorientate and disorganise the Hungarian army. The danger on this hot summer's day was to remain distant enough from the Hungarian archers until such a time as an attack was ordered and they very quickly attempt to advance through the rain of Hungarian arrows to get close enough to them to enter into close quarters combat where the Germans knew that they held the advantage. The tactic of bizarre overabundance of troops on one flank is not unlike the tactic of the Theban commander Epaminondas, when he was able to surprise and outflank the Spartans at the Battle of Leuctra during the 4th century BCE, which was a story we told during Volume 3. The tactic of Otto was highly risky, and he was bound to suffer losses in this aim, but he really had little choice as he had been lured to Lechfeld out of necessity and now needed to face the Hungarian threat in order to remove it. Otto kept himself and his personal military guard, the Legio Regia, on the right-hand side. Conrad would orchestrate cavalry attacks on the Hungarians from the German left in order to outflank them and prevent the Hungarian cavalry from launching lightning attacks and encircling the German infantry. Conrad's attacks enabled the Germans to be the ones to surround their opponent's infantry. This would have been a shock for the Hungarians who were used to winning their battles and they realised that they were suddenly up against some very clever tactics. The Hungarians decided that the best positive action to take under this pressure was an organized retreat in order to maintain an archers' distance from the Germans and to draw the Germans into open fields where conditions would be much more favorable, giving the Hungarians the speed to outmaneuver the Germans. This would allow the Hungarians to continue to rain arrows down on their attackers who would have been becoming exhausted on this hot summer's day carrying their heavy armor. Otto was not going to fall for this trap. Although he knew that he had the upper hand in the battle and would have been very tempted to pursue the Hungarians. Otto called a halt to the attacks to regroup, but it does appear that during this period there was a great number of German casualties. The cost of the battle for Otto was extremely high. It is even reported that Conrad the Red chose this time to try to cool himself down and remove some armour and it was while in this vulnerable condition that he was fatally struck by a Hungarian arrow. We certainly know that Conrad did indeed die during this battle. It was during this period of respite that the Hungarians decided that enough was enough and decided on a full retreat. The Hungarians had lost many men in the battle, including most of their right wing, thanks to the success of the German knights who had caused so much damage under the command of Conrad the Red. The Hungarians realised that they had lost too much and faced a total annihilation if they attempted to attack Otto again. As soon as Otto realised the Hungarians were genuinely retreating. He would contemplate pursuit. Otto may have been very aware of the step tactics of the rapid-moving horseback archers who would feign retreat in order to draw overzealous opponents into the open to be shot at in the style of the Parthian shot. The Hungarians abandoned their base camp and attempted to head back past the city of Augsburg. There was now no doubt that this was a real retreat. Over the course of the next couple of days it may have been a change in the weather from sunshine to rain that enabled Otto to really turn the tables on the Hungarians. Otto wanted to make sure that the Hungarians never came back and so he would have to send a clear message, and if rain was in the air, then it could provide enough hindrance to the Hungarian archers to be able to neutralise them and allow the Germans to pursue the Hungarians in relative safety. When Otto caught up with the Hungarians, he would spare them no sympathy. The speculation of heavy rain that neutralised the archers would be supported by the claim that the rivers that the Hungarians had to cross were swelling and flowing rapidly, and that when the Germans pursued them, many Hungarians drowned in these rivers that they desperately attempted to cross. Otto's army captured important military leaders, including Horka Bulcu, and now the battle was over. Aftermath Horka Bulcu, among other captured Hungarians, were taken to the city of Regensburg, where they were ceremonially hanged in public. Other Hungarians were facially mutilated, not unusual as a punishment in this period of European history, and sent back to Hungary as a clear message not to mess with the Germans any longer. The historian Dan Jones suggests that this battle was a major turning point in the perception of European cavalry, with the glory of the heavily armoured medieval European knight now superseding the reputation of the lightning-quick, lightly armoured steppe cavalry that had seen much success in battle on many occasions in history. Otto's victory helped to enhance his reputation as a hero to the German nation. The Germans who had been quite disjointed by internal conflict for many years now understood that they were being led by a capable leader and the rebellion subsided to a degree. This great victory over Europe's greatest terrorists of the 10th century put an end to the Hungarian invasions of Western Europe and earned Otto his epithet the Great. Even though this sounds like great praise in itself, more was still to come. The Pope would recognise the achievements of Otto and proclaim him as the new Holy Roman Emperor. The significance of the proclamation is that it would symbolise the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire being in tandem with the Kingdom of Germany. With the King of Germany also becoming the Holy Roman Emperor all the way up until the 19th century. Otto's achievements had set the scene for an empire which existed on the map of the world for the next eight centuries. A future pope would canonise the brave and dependable Bishop Ulrich of Augsburg, who resisted the siege of his city long enough for Otto the Great to arrive and make battle with the Hungarians. This would have been done posthumously, but it is significant because it would represent the first time that an individual would be specifically canonised by the Pope himself. So we can now refer to him as Saint Ulrich. As for the Hungarians, they would be somewhat contained to their lands in the Pannonian Basin and it would not be 50 years after the battle before they were Christianized. The Hungarian kingdom survived until the end of the First World War, before it evolved into the modern republic that we know today, but it would exist for many centuries and experience many differing fortunes along the way. There we go, another great story from the medieval past there, the Battle of Lechfeld. You really feel like we're getting into the the age of the medieval knights now. We're really talking about those very subjects and it really sets us up for future episodes and we're going to be covering so many battles you know, like over the course of the next few months and um it really that we haven't even touched on the Crusades. We're already twenty episodes into this volume. We've not even spoken about the Crusades yet. Um and um we've got all of that still to come, but not also not just the Crusades. There's so much going on around the the rest of Europe. So um, we're going to be turning our attention now to the northwest and the British Isles and then in turn the Vikings and, and, and that kind of thing so um, very much um, a very exciting part in our journey through the history of the world so thank you for listening to this week's episode and now on to other things The Ancient World Cup So we're now down to um, the knockout stages of the Ancient World Cup. Uh, the next part of the competition will involve the last 32 teams and there will be 16 head-to-head matches uh, in a straight knockout format until we get down to the last two who will play in the final. So it's, we're down down to straight knockout. Um, however, in creating those 32 final teams... Uh, we had to go through a qualification process which actually threw out a couple of tied results. So we've had to go back and deal with those tied results. And last week it was the, the Israelites and the Sasanians. We found out that the Sasanians would uh, advance uh, at the expense of the Israelites. This week it was the Judeans against the Scythians for the final, uh, for the final place in that last 32 and uh, it's now my pleasure to announce the results Uh, with 59% of the vote the final team to make up the last 32 in the Ancient World Cup will be the Scythians So it's the Scythians with 59% advancing. We lose the Judeans with 41% of the vote. And now we're down to the last 32. There's not going to be a match this this week. We're going to start the knockout stage next week. Uh, But in the meantime, I'd really like to know who you believe will go on to win the competition. If you go to the the uh, historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you'll see the final draw there and uh, the knockout brackets. So if you study those and just let me know what you believe the outcome of the competition will be, drop me a line, drop me an email, um, contact me through Facebook, Twitter, through the Talk discussion forum. Um, Give me your opinion. I'm very interested to know who you think is going to win this competition. Listener messages and reviews. So, let's uh, read out some of the reviews that we've received this week. Mingles 99 from Great Britain has put engaging and jargon free. This has pulled together some desperate facts that I half knew and many others that are a revelation to me into a joined-up narrative. The narrative is full of rich facts and is delivered with the passion of somebody who loves the subject and wants to enthuse others. It works. And then mama 4 from the United States of America has put fantastic, truly amazing show. Chris's episodes are well-researched, well-written and well-presented. I enjoy learning about the history of the world and I really appreciate Chris's hard work and enthusiasm for the podcast and their history. I'm on Volume 2 and learning so much. Well, thank you to both of you for your fantastic reviews. They're very encouraging, very positive stuff. So really do uh, thank you for those uh, very much. I got a message uh, from Emily who, who emailed me and said, I'm currently a high school student and absolutely love this podcast. Truly the boost of in depth history I need. I really love how deep it goes in an easy to understand yet interesting format. Also, I am on the academic team, and a question was regarding the site in Tanzania where Habalis was found. And I was able to remember the answer, Alderweire Gorge, from this podcast. So thank you for the endless entertainment and knowledge. I am now on the agriculture part and greatly enjoying it. Have a lovely day. Well, thank you so much, Emily. A very kind message, very uh, well-represented message there. So thank you so much. Um, If uh, you want to support the podcast, if you're enthusiastic about the podcast like Emily... Uh but you would like to uh support the podcast, then you'll be pleased to know that you can you can uh sign up to become a patron of the podcast by clicking on the patreon link at the history of the dot com website and uh you can sign up there to make a monthly contribution to the podcast and qualify for all sorts of gifts and rewards. When you sign up to become a patron of the podcast, you automatically become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome in this week um, a new uh, member of the History of the World podcast, Rahul Karanath, And uh, that's a new member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Thank you very much, Rahul. Now, one thing that particular patrons can qualify for is the ability to nominate a subject for a podcast episode of their choice. And um, we uh, we are pleased to announce that uh, next week uh, we'll be revamping a listener episode, so we got to that point in the podcast where we're gonna need to start looking at what was going on in the British Isles after the uh, after the disappearance of the Romans. And um, if you may, you some of you have listened to the podcast for some time, may recall that the YouTube channel owner of the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages. Uh, His name is Nick Barksdale, uh, commissioned a podcast episode on the Picts. Now, when uh, we did this originally, uh, it was made into a YouTube video, but subsequently, and since then, um, there's been a, a couple of things that I would have liked to have improved about that episode, but we're now in that part of our journey where the Pictish episode really sort of squeezes into this narrative quite nicely. So next week is going to be a new revamped version of the Picts. So that's going to be a very, very good episode and very uh, benefit of being double researched, if you like. So... Um, and also regulated by youtube viewers as well so that will be um a really good episode next week and uh, a great start into our uh, in our discussions about um the british Isles and anglo-saxons vikings and normans so uh, really are going to be opening up a, a great uh, theatre of of medieval history there um but As for this week, uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And until next week, uh, when we will meet again, don't forget to be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.